folks. Welcome to the Whoop Podcast. This is our 100th episode. Pretty amazing. I remember when we first started the podcast, I said, we'll do 10 and see how it goes. And here we are 100 episodes later. And thank you uh, all for listening and supporting the Whoop Podcast. Uh, a reminder, you can get 15% off a Whoop membership if you use the code WILLAHMED. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. We do have some amazing offers for the holidays coming up. Uh, Check us out on Black Friday through Cyber Monday if you are interested in getting a WHOOP membership. All right, our 100th episode. You know, we started this podcast with a simple mission uh, to be able to share conversations around the world of performance. And that's included professional athletes, business leaders, CEOs, scientists, doctors, and members of the WHOOP team to really help you understand everything about the broader world of human performance. And we hope we've done that over the last 100 episodes, and we're going to continue carrying on that mission moving forwards. And we're going to use this episode uh, to really look back at all the insights and learnings we've taken over the first two years producing this podcast, and we're going to share some highlights and reflections from our first 100 episodes. No retrospective would be complete without starting from the very beginning. Our very first guest was NBA Commissioner Emeritus David Stern. I miss David every day. He passed away in 2020. And one of the many things that stood out to me from that conversation with David was just how forward-thinking he was about the use of data in sports. My question for you is, as you think about sports over the next, let's say, 10 years, How much longer do you think NBA players' careers, or athletes in general, can be? Do you think that we're going to see players that are doing the Ray Allen, the LeBron James, the Tom Brady-type career, do you think that's going to be more common? Yes, and the short answer is I think that there are so many measurement approaches, devices, protocols, however however you describe them, that are and and players are going to interface with those so much earlier in their careers that the playing career length is going to be a function of the life length you know we're going to have more people who are going to be octogenarians and so that's going to reflect itself in sports as well because they're going to be monitored in a certain way their blood pressure their heartbeat their hydration their sleep, their recovery, their strain, they're going to all get monitored in a very special way. And that will obviously extend careers, if properly done, by a year or two, at least. Just think about that. Every star. Yeah, how good, how good is that for the end? You know, if you're peak. a rookie, you don't like that as much. But if you're a star, imagine if every nba star had an extra year tacked on it would be great for business this this idea it's incredible do you think uh the the habit of sitting players for just a random game throughout the season so this happened in 2012 where popovich sat duncan and parker and a few other players and i remember you find them because they didn't have a reason for the players not playing do you think that that's something that's going to continue as a trend well, actually, perhaps not because of uh, whoop, because you're going to know whether the player needs the rest or not. Well, but that's, if, but that's where I was going with this. So it's, you know, if whoop is telling... A you're co- leading me. Well, you, Objection. You, you took me there. Objection. Uh, 
if Whoop is telling a trainer or a coach, hey, this guy's showing some things physiologically, and th- this guy's really run down, the, is is the is the coach then empowered to sit the? the I athlete? think I think he should be. David, we missed you. Thank you for everything that you did to uh, to encourage me in building Whoop, and uh, I, I know you're cheering for us. It's awesome still for me to hear just how visionary David was about everything that we were doing at at Whoop, and it gave me a lot of confidence, frankly, that he saw the same potential that that we all have in how data can revolutionize sports. Now here's the perspective uh, from some professional athletes. Uh, it's hard to find better golfers on the planet than Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas, both of which have been on the podcast. What I took away from Rory was just how hard he works to be the best. I mean, there's so little, really so little that separates the best golfers in the world. And it was just fascinating to hear how Whoop uh, fits into the equation for him. I started wearing Whoop because I just wanted to know more about my my body and myself and how I recover and you know, I just wanted to optimize what I do. And I think in this day and age in golf, with the technology that's out there, everyone's got closer together. You know, the difference between the number one ranked player in the world and the number 100 is is actually pretty small. Yeah. So for me, I want to do everything I possibly can to get an advantage. And for me, whoop is, is one of those things that can give me an advantage. Rory also spoke pretty candidly about his collapse at the Masters in 2011 and what he learned from that experience. You know, sometimes the fear of failure is a good thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for me, it was, I never want that to happen again. And I'm never going to, you know, I, I've always prided myself in learning from my mistakes. And I made a lot of mistakes that day and that week. And, you know, maybe the next time you're not going to do everything perfect, but you're going to be a little bit better and a little bit better. So, for me, it was just this gradual buildup of, okay, you know, the next tournament I play, what can I do better than I did then? And it was just putting the building block blocks in place to get to a point where all I wanted was another opportunity. I was like, I, I want to get into the final group of a major again, and I want to show myself and people that what they saw at the Masters wasn't a true reflection of, of who I am. It's amazing listening to Rory and just having spent a fair amount of time with him now, like his level of humility and thoughtfulness towards uh, his sport, but also I think towards life is is incredibly refreshing. And it was really cool to hear just how much mutual respect there is between Rory and JT. I said, there's two guys where I live down in Jupiter that practice harder than anyone else. And it's myself and Justin Thomas. And there's no coincidence why we're two of the best players in the world. I mean, I think the absolute world of him. He treats everybody and me way better than someone who has done everything that he has should. I have a lot of respect for JT because I see how hard he works and and, and I think he, he tries to put as much into his game as I do. And again, there's no coincidence why we're you know two of the, the top players in the world. You put a lot of people in his shoes with all the everywhere he's being tied or pulled, um, all the accomplishments he has, all the money he has, everything that he has, he should not be as, as nice and, and everything as he and is. And down to earth, super down exactly. to earth. Exactly, and it's just it's little things like that that being around him has, has helped me, and, and I've tried to honestly model not only my game but just my persona and my personality and my swagger after him because he's, he's about as good as it gets when it comes to that. 
It's really cool hearing the admiration they have for one another. And I like what JT said about swagger. You know, it's an important recipe for success for so many athletes. And mind you, there's still a lot of nerves, which JT talked about. Now, when you're standing over a putt like the one on 18 at the President's Cup with Tiger Woods, do you actually feel your heart rate elevated? Are you trying to bring it down? Are you just ignoring that whole concept and focused on the putt? I, yeah, I've never thought of it before. I just am I'm focused on one thing and one thing only, and that's, that's making that specific putt that I have. Will you acknowledge that you're nervous in a moment? For sure. Yeah, I mean, you, I wouldn't understand why someone would do something if they're not nervous, because if you're not nervous, that doesn't mean anything to you. Totally. So, there's definitely good nerves and bad nerves. There's a oh my gosh, I'm so nervous, I'm scared to, to fail, nervous. And then there's like a, this is such a big moment, I can't wait to make this putt and show everybody, you know, this moment nervous. So there's butterflies and then there's bad nerves too. But um, yeah, it, it, it just, it always, it makes me laugh and honestly drives me crazy when some guys are like, I'm, I'm as stubborn as they come. But I don't understand how some guys can be so stubborn to say that they're not nervous teeing off Sunday at Augusta with a lead. It's like, what are you dead inside? Like, no, it's not. It's not possible. I mean, yeah. I'm nervous teeing off at a. Anytime I go play Augusta for fun, let alone the first round of a tournament, let alone the first round on Sunday with a lead. So, there's nothing wrong with admitting you failed or didn't do well. But it's uh, it's just so funny to me to hear, and people are like, I'm not nervous, and I'll be the first one to admit when I get nervous, but. Um, it just sometimes are more than others. It just differs. It's funny actually listening to JT talk about being nervous at Augusta because uh, they just had the Masters there. And we looked at the whoop data across all of the professional golfers at Augusta. And sure enough, the first day actually had the highest strain. So it just shows you that everyone feels, feels something when they step foot at Augusta. You know, I, I think it's clear to me just from doing all these podcasts how much elite athletes are willing to sacrifice to be the best. It's a really powerful theme. Here's basketball legend Sue Bird sharing her thoughts on the unbelievable feeling of winning and how those moments are so short-lived. Now, you've experienced uh, that like moment of bliss of winning. Yeah. Right? It's nice. <laughs> is that the the drug for you that keeps you coming back? It is. It totally is because you, there's no other time. I've not found other things that you know can can make you feel the way that that feels. It, it and there's it's funny because the sad part of it is, and there's the other thing you learn with experience. It's like it's so hard to get there. You get there. It's this amazing feeling. It's like a rush, and it really only lasts like that night. Yeah, it's you like know, 12 I, hours. Yeah, and I always tell my my younger teammates, I'm like, especially last year, it was like, you need to enjoy, or even Megan at the World Cup, like, tonight, tonight is the night. Tonight's like, make the night. sure Do it. you yeah. are, like, living it up because you try to recreate it the next night. And, like, don't get me wrong, it's fun. Yeah. And it lingers and it yeah, lasts. Yeah, yeah. But it's never, nothing is ever quite like, that, like the night you win. The thing I took away from that Sue Bird podcast is how fleeting that feeling is of success. And I think that permeates really across all aspects of life, not just professional sports, but there's this moment where you feel like you can win it all, but you could still lose. And when you overcome that moment and you win, it's the best feeling in the world. And then, you know, it goes and it's on to the next. And so driven people have this, I think this challenge with balancing dopamine 
and balancing serotonin, which by the way is a theme that we talked about with Andrew Huberman. Mother Nature installed this feel-good chemical called dopamine that is secreted anytime we're focused on something outside the reach of our hands and our own skin, literally. If it's about focusing on things outside our immediate sphere of experience, it's very it's involved in goal-directed behavior. So working towards a degree, working towards the raise, building something, all of that. And it makes sense why Mother Nature would design a, a chemical like this, because otherwise, why would we ever go forage for the food that would give us the reward or forage for the mate that would give us the uh, reproductive event? You know, why would we ever do that, right? Yeah, it so keeps we get us to, motivated, right? keeps us motivated. It is, think of it like a, like a rocket thruster. We have this conscious capacity as humans to self-dose these dopamine rewards in very subjective ways. And I think that's where meaning comes in. So I think of the, you know, the, the famous examples, the almost cliche examples of like Viktor Frankl or Nelson Mandela, you know, horrible circumstances, super challenging, but they found internal mechanisms to allow them to push through and not just to survive it, but to really emerge in the sense of real thriving in, in the face of adversity. People that push through adversity, hard degree programs, et cetera, they find this, they learn how to self-dose these dopamine rewards and, and the most powerful ones, and there are good psychology studies to support this, are going to be ones where people attach themselves to an external thing, but they internalize it as very important. But you don't ever want the pursuit to be in such excess of the eventual goal that you feel underwhelmed when you get there. Or you do, and then you arrive there and you simply pivot to a new goal, which you see a lot of people do over and over again. So they are chronically in the growth mindset. Um, growth mindset is their dopamine release as opposed to the goal. The key is to, to register the satisfaction from both. And there's a third element that I'll just mention that's, I think, very important, which is uh, Mother Nature installed other reward mechanisms in us that are very important. These are getting a lot more attention these days. There are a set of chemicals like serotonin and oxytocin that are involved in generating a sense of well-being and reward for things not beyond our reach and that lie in the future or outside of us, but that are within our immediate sphere of existence. And so these are, were designed to be released when we hold next of kin, when we see close friends, sometimes even when we look at objects that we have, a, have hold meaning for us, they tend to be kind of heartwarming because they trigger activation of some of the neural circuits that link the gut and brain, and they create a kind of sense of warmth in the torso. And so there's that feeling of like well-being and like, oh, I just love, you know, you or this so much. It's, you know, it's how I feel about my bulldog downstairs, right? I've had him 10 years. I look at him, I just feel good. I look at him, I just think like, I just think he's like a badass bulldog, but I feel different. It's not like it makes me want to go do anything. It's, it, these neurochemicals generate a sense of quiescence and a kind of sense of peace and calm. And it's very important for anyone that's listening that has goals, um, that is ambitious or hard driving, that you cultivate both reward mechanisms because they were designed to work together of working towards things and then gaining deep appreciation and gratitude and satisfaction for what you have, as well as the desire to go get more things. The people who are really balanced know how to cultivate both these rewards. I've spent a lot of time around uh, super driven people. And it's fascinating to hear Andrew Huberman talk about this balance between dopamine and serotonin and really the importance of the latter and the importance of gratitude. I mean, you listen to Sue Bird and she talks about winning and how you put so much into winning that that title and there's like that 12 hours of enjoying it 
before you're on to the next thing. And so being grateful, I think, for everything that you accomplish and being grateful for the moment, at least that's something I've really taken away from this podcast. Now, one of the main themes of the WHOOP podcast has been around mindfulness and putting yourself in the right headspace to succeed. And former Navy SEAL Mark Devine was really one of the most inspiring guests in that regard. He joined us in episode 59 and detailed how practicing mindfulness meditation and Zen helped him transition from being a CPA to becoming one of America's most elite warriors. Meditation is one of those things like exercise. If you just keep doing it and stick with it day in and day out, you'll look back over time and see your progress. You may not note the progress every day, but when you look back, you're like, holy shit, I have come so far. And so when you start to meditate and you, and you get control of the rational cognitive kind of left brain aspect, and you can drop into these moments of silence where you're not doing anything, right? The yogis would call that your perceiving mind. You're not thinking, you're not visualizing, you're not remembering, you're not dreaming, you're just sitting there meditating, I guess, right? Which is doing nothing. Well, you're doing things, something, but you're not actively doing anything. You're just listening and you're, you're searching or being quiet. And all of a sudden, that's when you can hear or sense what the gut is telling you, your gut brain and all the brain activity of the biome and, um, and your heart, right? And these two have a different way of communicating with you or through you. And I think that's what I was, you know, this idea that I was a warrior, it wasn't pattern recognition. It was my heart, my spirit telling me that's the direction to go. Then I showed up at Navy SEAL training. Everyone was a total stud, right? And I'm looking at this class. I had 185, you know, studs on day one. And I'm like, wow, there's, there's some badass guys, a lot of former military, like Marine Recon and even Special Forces guys trying to become SEALs and then a bunch of civilians like me. And so it turns out, Will, I mean, the physical stuff, I was right there. You know, I'd done the work, but pretty much everyone had that, you know. So I immediately kind of went back to my toolkit from Zen and said, okay, you know, what's going to differentiate me? Like, do you think you become a SEAL if you never learned to meditate? Absolutely not. Like there's zero chance that I would have been a SEAL. Mark was an amazing guest on mindfulness and someone I've followed up with uh, for my own practice. And I've meditated now for six years and it's changed my life. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in, in mindfulness or meditation, I highly recommend it. Best-selling author Ryan Holiday echoed many of the same sentiments. Uh, he dove deep on the meaning of stillness. But to me, stillness is when things slow down, when you get into a zone, when things are clear, when you're not sort of distracted by external or internal things. It's the ability to concentrate, the ability to focus. It's the ability to be at peace with oneself. So stillness comes in a lot of forms. I guess I think we can more clearly define it by what it's not. It's not inactivity but it's also not needless activity. This idea of stillness, this idea of being ego-free, I don't think it's antithetical to achievement, to success, or to, to great, you know, great feats of, of prowess, whether it's in art or sports or business or, or whatever. I, I actually think it's more impressive to be successful and good at something and not a slave to it. Like to me, my definition of success 
is autonomy. Do I have autonomy over my day, over my body, over my habits, over how things are done? If I'm moving towards autonomy, then, then I'm becoming more successful. If I'm moving away from autonomy, I'm becoming less successful, even if uh, depending on the direction I'm making more or less money or you know, achieving more or less recognition for my work or selling more or less books. To me, autonomy is where I'm trying to move toward. Along with sports performance and mindfulness, we've really tried to go deep on understanding science behind performance. And that's been a big theme for the episodes hosted by Kristen Holmes and Emily Capitalupo. They're really our go-to resources within WHOOP for learning everything we need to know about our WHOOP data and human performance. And there's an enormous number of great topics that they've covered. I'd encourage you to check out all of them in the WHOOP podcast archives. But here we're going to recap on HRV, alcohol, and sleep performance. So how just like generally, you kind of described, you know, this, you know, heart rate variability going up, resting heart rate going down, you know, just explain like how that's kind of a sign of fitness. Sure. So basically like with every heartbeat, our bodies need, like they use that oxygenated blood to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when your heart rate goes down, your resting heart rate goes down, you can roughly assume that the amount of stuff you have to do stay the same. And so what that means that like if you're able to sort of do that same amount of stuff with fewer heartbeats, it means that each heartbeat is more effective. You know, so either your body got more efficient and so, you know, it can kind of like do more with less or your heart is actually beating like more sort of higher what they call stroke volume. So more blood pumping per heartbeat. And so given that our maximum heart rates are more or less fixed, they decline as we age, but you don't really train that. If you can sort of do more per heartbeat, then that means that at your maximum heartbeat, which is your absolute maximum capacity, you can do more than somebody who's sort of doing less per heartbeat. And so what we start to see is that like, as somebody becomes more and more trained, and so their cardiovascular system is more efficiently pumping blood, they're able to do more at lower and lower heart rates, which means that they're sort of taking on less strain. Um, they're able to do more before they hit their anaerobic threshold and start to go into oxygen debt. Right. And so that's when you start to see people that they're like running faster yep. and further. So with HRV, when your HRV is going up, it just means that your system is more balanced. And so the more sort of you're not sympathetically dominating, the more room there is for sympathetic activities to come in and dominate. So what we actually see is that like when you're exercising at a really high capacity, you are in sympathetic domination. And so your HRV gets really, really low when you're, you know, exercising close to or above your anaerobic threshold. Um, And that's normal and that's totally healthy as long as when you stop exercising, you know, balance gets restored. Right. And so when your HRV is is sort of higher, there's sort of more capacity to like disrupt that and to allocate those resources towards exercise. I love this episode, the episode Kristen and Emily do on heart rate variability. And one big takeaway from it is that as you get fitter, doing the same workout on WHOOP may actually trigger lower strain, right? You do the same run at the same pace because you've gotten fitter. It actually has less strain on your body. Your heart rate is lower during that workout. So one way you can measure fitness over time is heart rate variability. Another way to measure fitness over time is as you do the same workouts over and over, you may actually see that your strain decreases. Here's alcohol. 
Okay, so just generally speaking, Emily, maybe we can just kind of go back and forth on what we know about alcohol. We can kind of back into the WOOP metrics and kind of actually what people are seeing in their data and how that might be related to the alcohol consumption. Sure. So I think, you know, one of the reasons why it's such a common kind of new user aha moment for us is because alcohol's a little bit sneaky. You know, we sort of perceive like, you know, oh, I, I you know, went to bed drunk and then I just passed out and like didn't move for 12 hours, right? And that we think about that as sort of, oh, that meant that I slept really well. But of course, if you think about it, right, when you wake up after drinking a lot, you don't feel rested. Like, yeah, you got, you know, maybe 10, 12 hours of sleep, which is huge, but you're not rested. So where does that kind of come from? And that's because alcohol is, is a sedative. It's not actually, you know, a sleeping aid. And so it does make you sort of not awake, but sleep is an incredibly active process. Our bodies are working really, really hard when we sleep. And if you have alcohol in your system, then none of those sort of very active processes can happen. So while it is true that you were not awake, you know, you didn't actually get the benefit of sleep. The reason why we are sleeping. And so you wake up sort of almost as if you hadn't slept at all. One important phenomenon here to understand that Emily touches on is you can actually get a lot of sleep but have a low recovery. And that shows up in particular when you have alcohol in your system because you may get eight or nine hours of sleep, but because it's low quality and because your heart rate variability is low, that'll still trigger a low recovery. So that's one of the interesting things about WHOOP is that sleep and recovery are actually independent scores. Kristen and Emily have spent so much time discussing everything you need to know about sleep. They're always reminding our listeners that sleep consistency is a critical component to getting better sleep. Well, I think this backs in really well to just this concept of regularity, right? Because mm-hmm. regularity is what, if you can understand when to go to bed and when to wake up, everything else kind of writes itself for mm-hmm. the most most part. Um, that's going to help drive the efficiency, right? So if, if, you, if you stabilize or you kind of can anchor the sleep-wake time, it basically kind of sets healthy circadian, which in turn is going to influence all the other clocks in the system and um, all sorts of good things kind of happen. And, and so, that's the goal, right? To spend as little time in bed right, as possible, yeah, it, but get the restorative <laughs> sleep you need. Right. Like the reason why, you know, we're all sleep deprived is because there's so many things we'd rather be doing. And so the right. real like hack to sleep is to figure out how to like spend every second that you're asleep sort of getting benefits. One enormous sleep hack for people listening to this is sleep consistency. If you go to bed and wake up at the same time, even if you're not getting the same number of hours of sleep, say you're not spending eight hours in bed, you're only spending six hours in bed. But if you spend those six hours in bed at the same time every single day, it actually makes the benefit of those hours much higher. COVID-19 has been a huge theme in 2020, and as a thought leader in health and performance, uh, we felt like it was critical to do research on it. Yale coronavirus expert Nicholas Christakis has been a longtime WHOOP advisor. So we got Nicholas on the podcast in March as the shutdowns began. The most optimistic estimate that I've seen anywhere is about 0.3% case fatality ratio. Now, if that happens, if 120 million Americans get infected and 0.3% get it, that's 360,000 deaths. That's a top three killer in our society. It's catastrophic, that many deaths. And it could be worse. It could be better. We cannot know for sure what's likely to happen. There's a range of outcomes. But what I can tell you is that we need to take this seriously. You know, this is not a not a drill. You know, this is like a real thing. We may get a little relief, as is typical of pandemics like this in the summer. 
But then what's going to happen, as is typical, is the schools will reopen in September and people will go back to work and then we'll have a second wave. And in 1918, the second wave was four times as deadly as the first wave. Now, I don't think that's going to happen in this case. I think this will be more like the 57 pandemic, but we're very, very likely to have a second wave. It's amazing how accurate Nicholas's prediction was there. Uh, you know, we're tracking, I think, towards over 300,000 deaths in America from COVID-19. And frankly, we couldn't have predicted that WHOOP would be a valuable resource for understanding COVID-19 until we did the research with CQU and other leading research institutions. Uh, but we began to notice that many of our members who came down with COVID-19 saw a dramatic increase in their respiratory rate. So we launched groundbreaking research into that connection, and our findings proved pretty important. Earlier this year, uh, WHOOP became the first wearable to have their respiratory rate validated by a third party. Uh, we're actually still the only wearable who's had their respiratory rate validated by a third party, and we're very, very good at it. So we're within one breath of truth during sleep. And so it's something that we can put a lot of stake in because we know that when we say your respiratory rate was 15 and now it's 18, like you can actually trust that that change occurred. And one of the things that we've noticed about respiratory rate that I think is particularly relevant here is that in healthy individuals, respiratory rate varies very little from day to day. Like most users, they're going to vary like less than one breath per minute. And so when it goes up from like 14 to 17, that's statistically extremely significant. Emily here highlighting our research on an elevated respiratory rate being a potential early indicator for COVID-19. And this turned out critical in the world of sports. Pro golfer Nick Watney tested positive for coronavirus shortly after the PGA Tour restarted its season. And he wouldn't have known that he had COVID-19 if it weren't for his WHOOP data. I wasn't really symptomatic besides his WHOOP data. I mean, I they took they put me through a thermal scanner and also took my temperature with a thermometer. Both were, were normal, no cough, no uh, shortness of like I my respiratory rate was up, but I didn't wake up panting or anything, or I wouldn't have known if I hadn't seen the data. Went to the golf course, social distance while warming up, and got a call about twenty minutes before that said your test came back positive. You need to go. You need to leave as soon as you can. I kind of said to the doctor like, is this is this real? I, I, I can't. I mean, I know that I saw the data, but is this? He said, yeah, this is real. You need to go. It's amazing. We're glad Nick's feeling fine uh, today and he never really showed meaningful symptoms, but pretty amazing that if he hadn't seen this elevation in his respiratory rate, he would have been playing golf all weekend uh, with the rest of the PGA Tour. I certainly appreciate Nick coming on the WHOOP podcast to be very open about his story and how using WHOOP data helped prevent the spread of COVID-19. And I would say throughout this WHOOP podcast journey, uh, we've heard from a ton of inspiring guests. Chris Heron certainly fits that bill. Chris was a high school and college basketball star, played for the Boston Celtics uh, before his career and life were derailed by drug and alcohol abuse. He told us the moment that finally got him down the right path was when he opened his eyes to the pain he had caused his family. I think the moment that spoke to me the most was when a counselor told me that I should play dead for my family. Wow. I had, I had just relapsed and my wife was in the hospital with our son. She just gave birth. Christopher was nine, Samantha was seven, and Drew was a newborn. And I relapsed on, on alcohol and heroin. And when I went back to the center, he told me I should play dead. 
give your wife some peace and tell her to tell your children that their daddy died in a car accident today. And I want you to get in a vehicle when you leave here and drive as far away from Massachusetts as you possibly can. He looked me in the eye and he said, play dead and let them live. Chris has an amazing story. And we got to know Chris because his rehab institute now uses Whoop on all of its guests. In episode 61, we sat down with Kevin Flyke, a Green Beret who was badly wounded while serving in Afghanistan. This is a remarkable story of overcoming immeasurable pain and suffering uh, while shot on the battlefield. Kevin told us what it's like to face death on multiple occasions. And he said in those moments, you reflect on the way you've lived. I got trapped on a mountain. It's 120 degrees. We're running out of water. We've been fighting all day. Every time I moved, it was like a movie, like a machine gun, just like trail my every movement. And for extended period of time, a couple hours, like I just kind of had to like lay down uh, behind some cover and had a lot of time to think. I was like, wow, you're going to die today. I had a conversation with myself at 26 that most people don't have until they're 80 or 90. I started to ask myself questions about my life. Like, what kind of man are you? Like, did you live your life the way that you wanted to live your life? I ultimately came to the conclusion that I hadn't because you always think you have the next time. And I was like, all right, and today is it for you, right? You woke up for the last time today. I've never felt so terrible in my life. That was truly an unbelievable podcast with Kevin, and I won't do it justice describing it. You should go listen to it. And to close this episode, I thought I'd reflect a little bit on the journey here at Whoop. Here's an episode I recorded with our friends Michael and Marcus from Noble. So our our mission at Whoop is really to unlock human performance. We believe every individual has an inner potential that you can tap into if you can better understand their bodies and their behaviors. And we've built technology really across hardware and software and analytics designed to continuously understand you. So it starts with a, with a small sensor. It's measuring your body uh, 24-7. Uh, and it's sending data from uh, the sensor to your phone, phone to the cloud. One of the main things that differentiates Whoop is we have a big focus on sleep and recovery and strain. And we also collect way more data than any other product in the market. So we collect about 50 to 100 megabytes of data on a person per day. And we sample data about 1,000 to 10,000 times as much as, say, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch. So it's a huge focus on health data. It's a big focus on performance. Our origins are really in professional sports. So we started working with really the best athletes in the world uh, when, when the first product came out. And, you know, two of our first hundred users were people like LeBron James and Michael Phelps. And uh, we became partners with the NFL Players Association. So we were distributed to every player in the NFL. We um, became the first product approved in Major League Baseball. We got to work with incredible people like the Navy SEALs. Over time, we we developed Whoop into uh, a consumer brand. And so now today... Uh, we're on our third generation of hardware, and so it's been a it's been a pretty fascinating evolution from high end sports wearable to now a product that a lot of people are finding value in and just bettering their daily lives. I would love to hear you know, how you got started. Yeah, I got into this space because I was always into sports and exercise myself. I was playing squash pretty competitively when I was growing up, and I got recruited to Harvard to play squash, and I became captain of the team there. And I felt like I didn't know what I was doing to my body while I was training. You know, a lot of uh, athletes 
overtrain, undertrain, misinterpret fitness peaks, don't necessarily understand the importance of recovery or sleep. And I was certainly one of them. Like I used to overtrain almost every season, which is the ultimate betrayal because you're putting so much effort into getting fitter and stronger. And then all of a sudden you fall off a cliff because you've just pushed your body well past what it's capable of. And so I got very interested in, okay, well, what could I measure about my body to prevent me from doing that? And at a school like Harvard, it actually felt like the three or four hours that I was spending exercising was some of the least intellectual time I was spending. Like it just seemed like it was, we were frozen in time with the way we thought about exercise. So I did a ton of physiology research. I read something like 500 medical papers while I was in school. And I ultimately wrote a paper myself around how I thought you could continuously understand the human body. And that really became uh, the business plan for WHOOP. You know, I didn't uh, set out to start a company as an undergraduate in school, but one thing just led to another. And I just became completely obsessed with this concept of continuously monitoring the human body. So that was episode 74 uh, on the Whoop podcast, if you're interested in hearing more about the origins. And uh, frankly, I don't feel like I've gotten any less obsessed with trying to understand uh, the human body some eight years later from all that research in school. Well, thank you again for listening to uh, to this podcast. I'm going to run through uh, the different podcasts that we just hit. So David Stern, former commissioner of the NBA, episode one. Heart rate variability, deep dive with Kristen and Emily. That's episode 29. Sue Bird, women's basketball champion, episode 42. Alcohol, all its negative effects on your body, how to optimize around it, episode 43. Sleep performance. This is a really good deep dive on sleep. Episode 55. Kevin Flake, the Green Beret, 61. Very inspiring story. Nicholas Christakis, a WHOOP advisor and epidemiologist focusing on coronavirus. That's 66. Respiratory rate and how it can help you understand COVID-19, 67. Rory McIlroy, 68. Andrew Huberman, world-class neuroscientist out of Stanford. That's episode 69. Uh, the story of Whoop. That, that's uh, where I was interviewed by the founders of Noble. That's episode 74. It's a good deep dive on the history of Whoop and where we're going. Ryan Holiday, New York Times bestselling author, episode 75. Justin Thomas is episode 77. Nick Watney, episode 80. So that recounts a PGA Tour golfer's experience using respiratory rate to predict COVID-19. And Chris Heron, a former professional athlete, uh, an alcoholic, drug addict who has turned his life around and now uses Whoop uh, with many of his patients. That is episode 95. So that's a that was the lineup for today's compilation. Uh, so many amazing episodes. Super grateful personally to get to be able to do this and to record all these podcasts with such you know really insightful guests. And uh, so thank you again to all of our guests. Thank you to Kristen and Emily for all of their contributions to the program. Thank you to Matt McCarthy, our podcast producer, and Mark Van Dusen, our original podcast producer, for all their contributions to the Whoop podcast. And thank you uh, all for listening and supporting the Whoop podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us. You can find all 100 Whoop podcasts at whoop.com slash locker. Select podcast there and you can see the list. Or find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Interact with us on social media, at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. And uh, have a phenomenal Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs>